When we began this morning, TJ, is this loud enough? Does it need to come up? When we began, I started by saying that we had three convert priests, and then to my surprise and delight, a fourth came in, who's hiding at the back of the room. <laughs> Father James Bradley is a priest of the personal ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham in England, parish priest in Southampton. Uh, grew up an Anglican, was studying to be ordained in the Church of England when he heard the call to swim the Tiber, and um, then was sent by his superiors to Washington, D.C. to do a doctorate in canon law before going back to England to preach the gospel. And now since we need missionaries in this apostate country, he's arrived from England to preach at Prince of Peace this weekend. <laughs> One of the questions submitted on the app concerned the perennial attractiveness of socialism. I said in my talk that communism was a lie and that while it seemed impenetrable, it wasn't. And we can understand its sudden and complete collapse because of, it was based on a lie a lie about God and a lie about man. And I compared it to the current gender dysphoria moment. But there is a good question to ask. If it was a lie, why did so many people believe it, invest themselves in it, sacrifice themselves for it? And among the answers to that question, I think this must be borne in mind. Communism was attractive to so many because it was an attempt to redress grave injustices. We know in the end it created even worse injustices than it sought to redress, but there were serious social problems in the world left over from many forms of slavery, including serfdom, many of which were amplified by the early years of the Industrial Revolution. And so you had the huge disparities of wealth distribution in all of Western countries, cities teeming with people displaced from their rural homelands where their ancestors had lived for centuries, children of tender years working in factories, cities being uh, sickened unto death by the pollution of the first factories. The combination of all of these things led many people to embrace communism because it promised a solution to social injustice, to uh, a disordered society. So the question, why does socialism continue to recur uh, as an attractive option for so many people, I think I would say it has two answers. First, they perceive that there are present injustices that need to be redressed and see socialism in whatever form as the best means to the end, notwithstanding the repeated failures of all socialist systems, which begin with the promise of redressing injustice and then result in even graver injustice. But second, and connected to it, as the number of unbelievers increase, the religious instinct in the human heart does not decrease. 
Man is a religious animal by nature. People need to invest themselves in some transcendent horizon. And if it isn't the most holy trinity, it may well be progressive politics. They see in it the source of redemption, not just of a more just society, but of a transcendent purpose that ennobles their lives and gives meaning to their sacrifices. And it's the combination of those two, I think, that helps explain it. Let me open your questions here. Um, how can I get a non-Christian interested in Catholicism if they're drawn more to rock concert feel-good type of Protestantism? <laughs> I could recommend a couple of Catholic parishes for them. <laughs> I think seriously, um, one needs to start with basics about if there is a conversation going on at all to um, ask what people mean by the word worship. Very often in our Protestant, Protestant churches, you'll see the word worship service, and by that they mean a praise and uh, worship rock band kind, kind of atmosphere. Uh, and therefore, if there's a conversation going on at all, you might begin by asking what people mean by worship. <clears throat> and uh, if worship is centered on uh, the personal emotions in a very highly emotional atmosphere, um, what, what are you worshiping? Uh, but then if you come back and begin to talk about uh, Catholic worship and what we actually believe about the liturgy and about uh, the Holy Mass, then there might be an interesting conversation going on to see that these two are not actually comparable at all. Um, one is an entertainment-based, emotionally-based um, religious uh, experience, uh, and the other is focused totally uh, on our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us, and therefore our response is one of awe and reverence uh, and uh, before this great majesty. So if, if you can begin to talk about the definition of worship, there might be some steps forward. When and by what body was the concept of Christ dying for our sins developed? Was this concept ever voiced or even alluded to by the Lord Jesus? <laughs> I think it would be. If Christ has not died for our sins, our faith is in vain. Um, that comes directly from the scriptures. Now, the question of exactly in what that uh, death consists and what it does for us is something which has been the subject of theological reflection for centuries, right? You, you think about, and we talk about the doctrine of the atonement, right? That, you know, that Jesus uh, offers himself to the Father for our sins. Well, is that in the sense of substitution, right? There's like, a, well, you know, he is up there in our place, or is it a matter of solidarity, right? That Jesus uh, being in solidarity with the world takes on our suffering in that way. Uh, the way that the doctrine of the atonement has been kind of looked at in different ways uh, has developed over the centuries and had different kind of nuances, but it's certainly there from the very beginning. Um, we have to be very careful when we think of like our current theological vocabulary of saying, well, I don't see that word in the scripture, right? Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll get, well, where is purgatory in the Bible? For example, 
And then usually when I hear that, I'll flip it around and I say, well, do you believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I said, well, of course. Where's the word Trinity in the Bible? The word's not there, the concept is. Same thing with the, the atoning death of Christ. Where's the only place in the New Testament the words New Testament occur? <laughs> From the lips of the Lord at the Last Supper, as he speaks what we call the words of institution, the words repeated by the priest in the celebration of the Eucharist. The New Testament is his broken body and outpoured blood. And his body is broken and his blood poured out for what? As he explains it in that same phrase, the forgiveness of sins. The entire purpose of his death on the cross is the forgiveness of sins, which is made present to us, not by reading about it, but by joining it in the celebration of the Eucharist. That's where we meet the precious blood of Christ. And, and not just meet it, are nourished by it. Unto everlasting life. How? Through the forgiveness of sins. Uh, the other thing which is important to remember is the image of the Lamb. The image of the Lamb goes right back, of course, into the Old Testament to the Passover Lamb, uh, which was sacrificed as a substitute. And um, the Passover Lamb was actually called the Lamb of God. And it goes back even further, of course, to the near sacrifice of Isaac and the Lamb or the goat which was substituted. Uh, and all of this comes to completion uh, at our Lord's first appearance when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this is integral to our Lord's identity even at his very first appearance. I was asked, did I keep that little Bible? Yes, but sadly, in my move back from Rome to the States, uh, it was in the one box that was lost. I lost some nice little treasures, including that little Gideon Bible. Uh, the second question was, the person who prayed with me the night of my conversion, are we still friends? When I became a Catholic, he tore his garments. I was dead to him because having received the pure light of the gospel, I then shrouded my mind in priestly darkness. He grew up in a free church, uh, Bible-believing environment, which regarded Catholicism as paganism dressed up in Christian drag. So our friendship was ruptured until years later, he married a lapsed Catholic, a classmate of ours from school, who became a Protestant. They raised their children Protestants. Um, when I was still his friend, I went to visit his home in Chapel Hill. His father was a professor at the university. His mother was not, although the parents met when they were graduate students at Harvard. She was doing a doctorate in math and, and uh, her husband in computer science. But she spent her married years teaching the children how to play musical instruments and read foreign languages. So after dinner, I kid you not, after dinner, they retire to the family room and the father passes out versions of the Bible, all right? Open to um, Ephesians chapter one, verse 14. Uh, Roger, you read it in German and your brother will read it in French and you read it please in the Greek. And I saw this with my own eyes. Uh, that was his background. And uh, to bring me to Christ and then see me walk away into um, the whore of Babylon was too much. Flash forward 30 years. The world is more complex and so is he. 
two, I think, of his kids went to Princeton, and one of them became a Catholic. In the chapel where I first said, I know you're not there. By now, and this was not true when I was a student, the Blessed Sacrament is reserved in the Princeton Chapel. In an entryway, they closed an exit and turned what was meant to be a foyer into a Blessed Sacrament Chapel, but it's still there. He's still there. Uh, so when I reestablished contact with him, I saw him first in New York City where he was practicing law, and then uh, a couple of years ago, he and his wife and the youngest of their children came to Greenville to visit. And they were here for a Sunday morning. And we arrived just, just as the nine o'clock mass was ending. And if you've never seen this, you should be here about 10 minutes after 10 some Sunday. After, when the weather's fair, after the nine o'clock mass, Miller Square is filled up with an army of children and their parents standing in the shade, talking to each other and the children running everywhere. It's delightful. Well, they'd never seen anything like this in a Catholic church. So we're approaching from the parking lot into this, and they were amazed. And then they stayed for the 11 o'clock mass and said afterward, when the music began and the sound of 400 Catholics lustily singing a, a, a hymn that they knew by heart hit them in the back of the head, uh, the, the wall of sound, it was a great awakening that, that there is real faith here among disciples of the Lord. It was a transformative, so a friendship that was interrupted for three decades has been restored. <laughs> Can I accept it or another question? <laughs> How do you respond to family and friends who say the Catholic Church is too complicated and therefore they have no interest in pursuing it? One of the things that I love the most about St. Mary's Church is that from the outside, you have these windows which are dark, right? They don't look like a heck of a lot. It's only from the inside that all of a sudden you see that there are these beautiful images and colors and they look different in different times of year and different times of day. The Catholic Church can look awfully complicated from the outside, right? You know, all these rules and regulations, that's the kind of thing I get all the time, right? So we even have a code of canon law, no offense. Um, all of these things, it looks very complicated. How, I mean, how is this any different than the Pharisees and their 613 commandments, right? Um, but I think it's one of those things that the simple truth of the gospel is actually lived in ways which are not complicated uh, or complex, but multifaceted and beautiful, right? Think of a diamond. A diamond is a simple rock that comes from the earth, but there's all kinds of facets and it catches the light in a certain way and it delights uh, your wife when you give it to her in a ring. Uh, the Catholic faith is like that. I think that from the outside, it looks terribly complex and foreboding. And it's only from the inside when the light of Christ illuminates it uh, that you see that it's not a matter of simplicity, uh, but uh, of uh, tremendous diversity and beauty. To that, I would add this. Who wants to live in a Disney-fied world all their lives? Um, simplicity um, is a blessing when you're a child and you don't know anything. Complexity characterizes adult living. Um, you need to learn a great deal to understand the world, the cosmos, oneself. 
this is why you can't condense the gospel to a slogan. Right? Anyone who thinks that all that God has revealed for the salvation of the human race can be put on a bumper sticker is both an idiot and doesn't understand the gospel. A, fr- a Catholic priest friend of mine told me a story about um, a Methodist minister who knocked on his door before Lent. Uh, and he said uh, to the Catholic priest, can you tell me uh, where you get your ashes for Ash Wednesday? Because we're trying to do things more Catholic this year. And he said, last year I wanted to do ashes, so I just took some from my fireplace and added water. And it was real messy. (laughs) And the Catholic priest explained, well, we take the palms from the Palm Sunday of the year before, and we burn them in a special ceremony on Shrove Tuesday to make the ashes for the ashes for Ash Wednesday. And the Methodist said, gee, all this Catholic stuff is connected. And it is, and that to my mind explains the complexity of the Catholic faith. That it's all connected, and therefore it's a complicated uh, machine, bit of machinery. Uh, and the joy of discovering it all uh, is the joy of discovering how it's all connected. Question is, why does the Vatican, and the Pope personally, seem to give so much support to globalism represented by the United Nations or try to make peace treaties with communist China when Christians are being persecuted or embrace the liberal agenda of men like George Soros who in fact want to undermine Christianity rather than support it. I think there's a few things to keep in mind. Um, the Catholic Church has outlived every empire of any kind for the last 2,000 years. We're here for the long haul. And for Amer- and praise God for that, right? You know, with Americans, we have a very short memory. And we tend to think in terms of instant gratification. There's a problem, fix it, and by God, you do it right now, right? And go big or go home. This is kind of our, our attitude towards things. Um, If we see everything from our particular American political perspective, then there are a lot of these things when you start looking at them that seem quite frankly a little terrifying. Uh, And some of them are still quite terrifying, no matter what perspective you look at it. But when you look at it from the perspective of centuries, like what what is the best way that the church can position itself for a long-term solution to certain humanitarian or diplomatic issues, then all of a sudden it takes on a very different kind of of hue. Um, For example, I'll give you a historical example, not today, of uh, the church's attitude towards communism, right? Well, the church's attitude toward communism uh, was very much a matter of, of, of very clear condemnations of, con- uh, of communism, which were both um, kind of intellectually and theologically accurate. 
Well, around the time of the council, uh, the church kind of changed not its teaching, but its approach to this. And that became something known as Auspolitik. So even the Vatican began to uh, make these kind of noises to a certain degree, um, which could be seen as very problematic. Well, then all of a sudden, John Paul II comes on the scene, who was from within the communist bloc and understood these people better than any Italian diplomat could ever hope to understand. And so his thing was to make a total end round around everything that the communists had built and go directly to the people, which in theory, that was what communism was all about, right? And it was in doing so that it really provided a tremendous... Um, kind of perfect storm in a good way for communism to fall. And so sometimes the church does this thing where it zigs where you think she's going to zag. And Providence uses that to position the church in a way so that later on um, things can get better in a certain way. Now, okay, sometimes you have to look at certain things and you're like, is this going to work real well? I'll give you an example. Uh, in Mexico, uh, some of you have heard of the Cristeros, right? Um, we know that uh, the American government was actually behind the persecution of Catholics uh, during that time period. Uh, and the Vatican um, was very convinced at this point that this was something which wasn't going to last very long. And it would be over and then we'd be back to, you know, Catholic Mexico and all of that. And, and that didn't happen. Uh, and a lot of people suffered because of it. Um, but it was the faithful who kept Catholicism going even when the kind of um, foreign policy of the Holy See uh, wasn't as clear as it could have been and could have been more helpful. Um, so this is where, uh, you know, again, we see the, the famous thing with, uh, you know, Pius VII and Napoleon, where, you know, Napoleon, uh, you know, says, I will crush you all. And Consalvi, who was the Secretary of State for Pius VII, says, if we clergy haven't destroyed the church, then you don't have a hope of it. <laughs> Keep going forward doing what you're doing, and God will work all of this out. Um, and re remember to when you when you see these things to think that the church thinks multiculturally globally in a way that we may not necessarily look at these things uh, in the same way if that makes sense Pope St Pius V responding to the embrace of protestantism by the queen of england elizabeth i thought that he was defending the faith by excommunicating her and absolving all of her Catholic subjects of allegiance to the crown because she was a heretic. Well, the result of that was to make every Catholic in England a criminal, a traitor, because of the idea that they no longer owe allegiance to the crown. And very quickly, to be a priest in England was to be a felon. And priests were killed by the scores. Catholicism was excluded from civil society and persecuted ruthlessly. It's one of the reasons why when John Henry Newman was received into the church in 1845, it meant he could no longer teach at Oxford. It was not possible for a Catholic to go to the university, let alone to teach in it. Well, gradually that changed. And in the mid-19th century, the Catholic Church was reestablished in England. The hierarchy restored. New dioceses were erected. 
Was Pius V wrong to call Elizabeth I a heretic? No. Did he miscalculate by saying that her subjects were no longer uh, bound to their sovereign? Yes. It took 300 years to sort it out. But one quality of the Catholic Church is called Romanita. Romanitas, a way of looking at the world from Rome, which is 3,000 years old, the city, and which has been governed by the successors of Peter for two of those 3,000 years. The long view of history um, provides an opportunity to correct mistakes, to see complex situations over time and understand them in greater depth. This is completely contrary to our 24-7 news cycle where we want an answer to this morning's question at supper, right? And if there's a problem, and we read about it on Monday, and by Friday the Pope hasn't denounced it, let alone corrected it, we think something must be wrong. When in fact, the Protestant Reformation is now 500 years old. Talk to us again in 500 more. If it's still around, we'll be concerned about it. That, that long view of history does change the way reality is perceived and connected to. Next question. Father Longenecker doesn't want to bite at that apple. <laughs> How can the joy of the gospel be shared in the public school system where hedonism is encouraged and most students have a nihilistic worldview? There's a problem with the public school systems and increasingly the what we see as separation of church and state is becoming the establishment of an atheistic state and an atheistic philosophy which is filtered through to uh, the school systems, <clears throat> certainly at the college level, and more and more from the reports I hear down into the high school and even the elementary school level. So the secular system in the United States is um, not just a separation of church and state, but it's actually beginning to be the very slow and very gradual but very effective implementation of a secular and therefore atheistic philosophy in our public schools. Um, one of the obvious answers, of course, is to support your parish Catholic schools. Drum roll, please. <laughs> support them with your giving, support them with your prayers, send your children and grandchildren there. Uh, and make sure that um, our Catholic parochial schools are actually um, supported. The three that, of our parishes are doing our very best um, to, in order to continue this. But to answer the question more directly, um, I believe that the answer is for Christians in the public school system, teachers and students and parents, um, to simply be Christians uh, and to be, have a radiant witness in their own lives, a radiant witness to their fellows, uh, so that people, as they did in the early church, will see the Christian witness in our lives and in our words and in our works, um, and that this will, will counter the darkness uh, because of the light we're, we're trying to show through. Let's remember that in the 19th century, our bishops decided that every parish should have a school, not because the public or government schools were teaching atheism, but because they were teaching Protestantism. The fear was that Catholic children would go to public school and come out Calvinists, not atheists. 
I have uh, cousins who were nine years my junior, twin brothers, who both became priests. Um, their high school graduation in the town where I was born in 1989, the, the county board of education gave a graduation gift to every graduating senior, a King James Bible. Amen. As late as 1989, the public schools in the little town where I was born were still Christian schools because the ambient culture of almost everyone who lived there was Protestant Christianity. Now the public schools propagate nihilism and hedonism because the ambient culture is nihilistic and hedonistic. So the, the government schools will always reflect the ambient culture of the place where they are. And when there's friction on this point, like the never-ending arguments about prayer, you can't, you can't teach the Bible in class, but can you have a prayer before the football game? And if so, which God will you pray to? Will it be the great architect of the universe or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? All those continuing battles are manifestations of the shifting fault lines in the ambient culture, where more and more people cease to be Orthodox Christians and then don't want any trace of Christianity in their government schools. Having said that, before I give this to you, I went to a public school, and there were several teachers who were serious Christians who never mentioned their faith in class in the sense that I'm a disciple of Jesus and I want you to be, but who nevertheless planted seeds of the word into the minds and imaginations of their students, which later bore fruit. My 10th grade English teacher was a Catholic, uh, the only Catholic on the faculty to the best of my recollection, who taught English literature, not religion, just English literature. But after the fact of my conversion, I began to understand what she had done for an entire year of school, planting seeds of the word, which later blossomed and bore fruit. Finally, a group called Young Life, which is Protestant, primarily, but now has a special department for Catholics, specializes in penetrating public schools with missionaries, basically dressed up as a youth organization designed to have fun, retreats and, and such like. It's increasingly difficult for them to find a place in public schools, but they still do it in many places. And for this reason, to find a way to, do, to bear direct witness to Christ, even in a public school. All the above, uh, plus, um, I think we have to be very intentional about reevaluating the way that we communicate the faith to our children. Um, catechesis in Catholic schools, religious education programs, and homeschool programs is absolutely crucial, and we need to take um, stock of the situation as it exists. Uh, at least in my own parish, uh, we have done a significant rethink of how we approach these questions to add, well, in, in several aspects of this. One is to add things that we never really had before logic because people don't know how to think anymore, um, or think clearly anymore. Um, significant investment in church history, 
um, apologetics, both in its kind of, you know, fundamental and then controversial things. Because as I say to my people, you know, we're awash in a sea of Protestants and atheists. And if these children graduate my school and they don't know how to defend their faith, both against secularists and against Protestants, then they don't have a reason for the hope that is within them. Uh, it can't be all rainbows and unicorns and felt banners, right? Uh, so we have to, to communicate the content of the faith, but being very cognizant of the real situation of these children when they go out into the world. The other thing is that we also have to challenge everyone that they are lifelong learners. Uh, it's not just, oh, well, I'm finished with my Catholic education in eighth grade and I'll never pick up a catechism ever again. Uh, we have to reignite that love for learning um, and make it from womb to tomb. And so I think our parishes are in a privileged way in doing a, a significant rethink of the way we communicate the faith of then giving our children, particularly the tools to survive in a public school environment or to survive in any kind of environment. Uh, but if we don't do this and we keep doing what we've always done, um, then we're losing a lot of opportunities and we will lose the next generation as well. And that just, that, there's no reason for that to happen, but it takes a significant amount of investment of resources, uh, of energy, uh, and to think, okay, what, what is the current situation? What, did, what is it that these kids need to survive in whatever environment they happen to find themselves in? Pre-Christian Greek philosophy identified three transcendental categories of being which are privileged windows through which human persons come to a deep knowledge of the great mystery of existence. Why do I exist? Why does anything exist? Is there any meaning in suffering? What will happen to me when I die? And these three transcendentals are goodness, truth, and beauty. Without planning, by the way, there was no coordination among the three of us about our talks this morning. We just identified the general topic and said the Holy Spirit will sort it out. But it occurs to me that Father Longenecker talked primarily about goodness, a holy life, a wholesome life, an attractive way of living. And Father Smith talked primarily about beauty, the beauty of words, the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of buildings, all of which speak to the beauty of God. And I talked primarily about the truth, goodness, beauty, and truth. The problem with the transcendentals is our tendency to separate one from the others. So if goodness is pursued with zeal to the exclusion of the others, the result is Puritanism, and it can become destructive. If beauty is sought to the exclusion of the others, it becomes aestheticism, and then it gives itself over to moral disorder of many kinds, sexual pleasure or uh, indulgence of gluttony. Uh, celebrating beauty for its own sake. If truth is, is grasped without the others, it becomes fanaticism. And in Christian history, all three mistakes have been made over and over again, in this place or that, by religious communities, by groups of Christians, 
The challenge is to keep them in, in creative conversation. And no one person is going to be equally drawn to all three, right? You know from your own children. From the time they emerge from the womb, you can begin to perceive their individual personalities. Before they can understand a word you say, you can see the lines that are going to emerge as they grow. The ones that are combative, the ones who are placid, the ones who are curious, right? So some people are naturally drawn to, to beauty, some to goodness, some to truth. But the church's responsibility is to keep all three together, to transmit all three in all the ways we've identified, in the hope that something in every person will resonate with at least one of those three transcendentals and draw them closer toward more Christianity and be open to the others. We have a man in the parish who grew up a Baptist and who came here with a small child, his youngest, I think four or five years old. And when they walked in the back of the church, the child looking in wonder, as Father Smith did in his own youth, said to his daddy, does God live here? The beauty of the building awakened in the soul of the child an awareness of the presence of God. So, trying to bear witness to the truth may come first by awakening a desire for the beautiful or the good. We talked earlier about Bishop Barron. He's convinced that the, the most direct route to a hearing of the gospel for this generation of those with no religious beliefs is the beautiful. Precisely because the culture tells them they can't know the truth even if there is one and that there is no good, there's only your desire. But beauty remains uh, in a different category and can awaken a deep yearning in their souls for something more that may eventually lead to an understanding of the good and the true. Just very briefly to add to that, if we're talking about education, um, just to let you know, some of you may have heard that at OLR we are actually starting a small upper school uh, with a classically based curriculum. Uh, and therefore, uh, this is not a high school um, as such, it's a small upper school, no more than 20 students per year group. Uh, and we have our first ninth graders this year because we're convinced that this education also needs to continue right up through to 12th grade. Is there a particular argument or passage in the Christian tradition that stands out as preparing your experience of the numinous in the Princeton Chapel? Well, this goes back to what I just said about beauty. It, something beautiful needs no words to draw the heart. You see it and your heart yearns to have it, to hold it, to possess it. Uh, Sometimes it's the beauty of nature. Uh, sunrise at the beach. Uh, the, the Grand Tetons. Have you ever been to Jackson, Wyoming? The sight of the Grand Tetons leaves you wordless. Except to say, as Teddy Roosevelt said, 
that's what all mountains should look like. <laughs> um, in, in, in September of 1988, I was in Florence, Italy, not Florence, South Carolina. <laughs> and the choir of King's College happened to be in town singing a concert that night, not in Florence, but on the mountain town above Florence, Fiesole, which has a 10th century cathedral. Magnificent Romanesque building, utterly simple, powerfully beautiful. If you've never been to Florence, take my word for it, the Florentines are the most beautiful people on earth. And they live in the most beautiful city on earth. And they have the best food on earth. <laughs> so that evening, and, and that September day was perfect. Bright sunshine, cool air, not an ounce of humidity, not a cloud in the sky. So I went up to Fiesole on this perfect September day. I had a meal to die for. I went into the cathedral, surrounded by these magnificently beautiful Florentines, and listened to Palestrina being sung by the choir of King College. I said, Lord, kill me now. <laughs> Perfect day, in every way. The heart is filled with desire in the face of such beauty, right? So you don't have to explain it. In fact, people who try to explain it, kill it. Just experience it, enjoy it. However we convince people, if their lives are not yet centered on Christ, that they're missing something, it eventually has to come to words, words about the word. But the thing that may awaken in them a yearning to know more may well be a wordless experience of the heartbreaking power of beauty. And for that reason, bringing them to the sacred liturgy may be the beginning. Come and be to Mass. Now let's be candid. In too many places, the liturgy is heartbreaking, but not because it's beautiful. <laughs> In the years after the council, with the proliferation of ugly buildings and sloppy liturgy and ugly vestments and really horrible music, the average experience of prayer is more like a preview of purgatory than a preview of heaven. <laughs> In fact, I took off some time between first and second theology, and when I went back to the seminary, my classmate said, why'd you come back? And I said, because if I don't become a priest, I'll have to stop going to Mass. So bear that in mind when I say the best way to awaken a yearning for the truth may be to say, come with me to Mass, provided that the liturgy is what it should be, an experience of the Paschal mystery surrounded by beauty. I think there's also something to be said uh, for intellectual beauty. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend of mine who talked about this mathematical equation being beautiful. And I looked at him like, how can math possibly be beautiful? Um, but when you think about the, the fact that all of the doctrines of the faith 
um, the rhythm of the liturgical year, uh, the interconnection between the sacraments, all of those things uh, produce a unity. They're not just disparate points on a line that have nothing to do with each other. The beauty of the coherence of the faith, once you kind of stand back and you see this, you're like, wow. It's, it really is incredibly amazing. The, one of the difficulties is that if people just see little strands of it, they may say, okay, well, well that's good. That, yeah, I don't know about that so much. Or, well, that seems true, or that doesn't. If you stand back and look at all of it, um, that's when people's lives can entirely be changed. Because when you see that, then you know, okay, yes, there is a God, and he's calling me to truth and to goodness and beauty. And the unity of all of that mystery and all of its diversity is what is so incredibly compelling uh, to many people as they discover Catholicism. If the beauty of the physical church is so important, what do we do with all the ugly churches built in the last 60 years or so? <laughs> you go to OLR and see how they did it. Uh, bulldozers. <laughs> no, seriously, um, a lot of the buildings, a lot of the ugly church buildings that were built, were actually built very quickly with cheap materials, um, and uh, they they really are not worth salvaging. So some of them are actually ready to to um, be demolished, um, but there are others who are. Um, other young architects uh, and pastors who are working hard and very creatively uh, on ways to uh, bring a sense of the sacred into some of the buildings which um, are totally uninspiring. Uh, and some of the efforts that they're making are really um, tremendous. Sometimes they're working with architects at total renovations of the interior to bring a sense of the sacred and a sense of the holy and the sense of the beautiful into them. Sometimes if they don't have that budget, um, younger pastors are simply coming in and with salvaging stuff from old churches and an eye for proper decoration and proper order in the church are actually bringing a, a, a very a simple sense of um, beauty back into these churches uh, through the use of furnishing and lighting uh, and proper vestments and so forth. So um, there, there's a lot of good stuff happening uh, at the currently, which uh, if you take an interest, I know Father Smith is, um, in the, the new liturgical movement, you'll see some of these exciting things that are happening. Why is the Pope so accommodating to Muslims and what does the church teach about Islam? As it happens, the, the Center for Evangelical Catholicism devoted an entire conference uh, two years ago, TJ, or three? Three years ago on um, evangelizing Muslims, on the church's understanding of Islam. The first thing to be said is this, only three religions in the world claim to be revealed by God and only two are. The three religions that claim to be revealed by God are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Christians believe that Judaism is a revealed religion and Christianity is a revealed religion, but Islam is not. Christianity has ever believed that Islam is the work of a religious genius, Muhammad, who was a complete heretic, but who in his creative, unique way assembled bits and pieces of Judaism, Christianity, and other Eastern religions to create the phenomenon of Islam. And it exploded at a moment in the history of the world when 
the Arab tribes had uh, enough energy and drive to do what they did, which is to conquer most of the southern part of what was the Roman Empire. And as the Arab conquest took place, Islam went with it, and the two refused Arabic culture and the new religion. Thus setting the stage for a thousand years of armed conflict. Think, for example, of uh, Spain, the Muslim conquest of Spain and the Reconquista. Uh, think of the constant warfare between uh, the Ottoman Turks and the Christians of Europe. Um, uh, the Crusades were not Christian imperialism, but self-defense. The attempt of the Christian West to take back uh, the Holy Land and the places associated with the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, World War One put an end to the Ottoman Empire. No more caliphate, no more Muslim empire, and the Muslim world after World War I devolved into internecine conflicts that are still going on. The Sunni um, Muslims of Arabia and the Shia Muslims of Persia, Iran, at war with each other. Um, the constant infighting with, uh, among the various tribes of Arabs who are all Muslim. So there was a break. From World War I, there was a break. And Western people forgot that for a thousand years we had been at war with Islam. Well, we were reminded of that history on September 11th, 2001. It came back in a ferocious way. Um, but public attention spans, being what they are, people don't want to think about it in those terms. Now, it's in the context of that that the Second Vatican Council in its declaration on the church's relationship to non-Christian religions, attempted to start a new kind of relationship with Islam along with Judaism, right? So historic anti-Semitism is repudiated and the hope was that Christianity would be able to engage in a conversation with Islam that would not involve warfare. And Everything since that moment, done by the Holy See in the name of the Catholic Church, has been in the hope of creating the possibility for an ongoing, civilized, rational conversation with Muslims. Is it five years since Pope Benedict gave his uh, address in Regensburg? Longer than that, seven years. Seven years. Oh, well, uh, yeah, Frank is, is seven years, so it must be eight or nine years. Anyway, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, on a trip to Germany, gave an address at the university where he had been a professor in Regensburg, in which he was talking about faith and reason, making uh, a principled argument for faith not being irrational or in any way contrary to reason and in fact being the complement to reason, as described by John Paul in his masterful Fides et Ratio. But in the context of the lecture, he pointed out that a Christian Byzantine emperor, in conversation 
with a Muslim, um, made reference to the irrationality of Islam because of its insistence on violence. This was just a passing remark in an otherwise um, standard kind of academic lecture that Benedict had been giving his entire life. What did he do? A nun was murdered in Africa. Uh, a bishop was murdered in Turkey. Uh, there were riots in the street in Muslim countries because the prophet had been insulted. So much for rational discourse with the religion of peace. But this is why the Holy See has tried patiently, consistently, now for six decades, to avoid confrontation, to avoid um, argumentation even, because it so quickly and easily leads to violence. And the idea is we all ought to be able to agree that God wants no one to die in the name of God or to kill in the name of God. But so far, we haven't gotten a positive response on that point. Anybody else want to talk about that? Okay, last question. that I saw earlier about Satan. From a charismatic asking about, or someone who was a charismatic asking about response to the demonic. That's a nice way to end. <laughs> the devil, contrary to the belief of the superior general of the Society of Jesus, is real. You may not have seen this. The priest who's the head of the Jesuits um, several times in his life has publicly stated that the devil is a literary device, is the personification of evil to help us understand, well, blah, 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 blah. No, the fallen angels are real personal beings. Every angel ever created by God is a person with a mind, or intellect and will, and they exist individually just as we do. Uh, and the fallen angels are those who, in the moment of their creation, rebelled against the plan of salvation. This we know from Holy Scripture. Um, all of the Bible bears witness to the truth of the angels, both the holy angels and the fallen angels and to their identity as individual persons um, who are not physical, are not embodied, um, but are real individual persons. So persons exist in three categories, we might say, divine persons, angelic persons, and human persons. The thing com common to all persons is individual existence. So Father Dwight and I are not the same man, and Mrs. Longenecker is very happy. <laughs> 
individual existence differentiated from all other individual existence and each individual with the capacity to know and to love. And because we have the capacity to love, we have also the capacity to hate. The fallen angels do not doubt God's existence, but they do not love him and they will not serve him. And there is among the fallen angels a hierarchy just as there is among holy angels. This is because angels are not like us. We all have the same nature, right? We are all individual instantiations of humanity. The angels are not part of the same species, if you will. Each angel is as different from every other angel as the geranium is from the German shepherd. They are, think of them as each angel is a completely self-contained species. So there are different kinds of angels and different gifts other than the fact that they're all persons and that's what they have in common. The fallen angels do not love and will not serve the living God. And in some way, they are at war with all who love and serve the Lord, including the holy angels and us. All of this is testified to in scripture. Jesus himself teaches it clearly. Among the fallen angels, there's a commander in chief. He's called not by proper name in the Bible, but by titles. Satan simply means enemy. He is called by the savior, a murderer and the father of lies. And in the book of Revelation, he is described as the accuser, the accuser. From apocryphal texts, we have what is thought to be a proper name, Lucifer, the light bearer. Again, Lucifer is not a revealed name, but it seems fitting that he be described as Lucifer because in this hierarchy of angelic orders, he's at the apex, the light bearer. Christ is the light. The light bearer is meant to be closest to the Christ. So his corruption and fall is the worst. And his war against us is real. All of that's borne witness to by the scriptures. What's essential for us to remember, however, is that the angels are creatures of God, just as we are. Even Satan, Lucifer, if you will, is not God's rival. He's a creature. He could not be God's rival. So it's not that there are two principles at work in the universe, one light and one dark, one good and one evil. There are religions that believe that, but Christianity is not one of them. The universe is completely dependent upon and in control of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the fallen angels continue to exist as individual persons by the creative act of God. That's what we must first remember. If God wanted the, the fallen ones to simply wink out of existence, it would be done in less than a heartbeat. Their continuing existence, like the existence of sinners, in some way serves the eternal plan. For right now, we're engaged in spiritual combat. But we should never be afraid of them because we place our trust in the Lord. Having said all that, it does happen from time to time that the fallen angels gain access 
in ways that can be frightening to the lives of men and women who toy with them, who invite their interference, who open themselves to the malign influence of the fallen angels. This is important. It's not that some holy, God-fearing, pious Catholic is at mass telling his beads and a fallen angel comes and takes him over. That never happens. The people who get tied up with the fallen ones invite it. In some way, even indirect, and this is why the dark arts like tarot cards and Ouija boards are not just uh, harmless party entertainments because the premise behind them is you can gain secret knowledge that gives you control either in your life or someone else's life by means of these uh, uh, hidden portals to the deep mystery of life. Well, that's darkness. The question is, when somebody has opened himself or herself to this influence, which may take the form of oppression or possession, then what? Father Dwight's going to answer that. <laughs> I'm just reminded of what Padre Pio said when someone asked him, what do you think about modern people that don't believe in hell? And he said, they'll believe in it when they get there. <laughs> and the same thing might be added to a person, uh, a modern clergyman who doesn't believe in the devil, they'll believe in him when they meet him. So it's something to be feared. And to answer Father Newman's point, um, exorcism is therefore uh, required, or the deliverance ministry, which is a, a lower level of um, freeing a person from Satan's bondage. And anyone who has witnessed um, an exorcism will have no doubt about the, the reality of demons and the devil. When I talked during my remarks about the sacraments being the action of Christ, we forget that the sacrament of confession is the sacrament by which God dispenses his mercy to the world and restores to us the image and likeness uh, to God which has been lost by sin. I think when we help people understand truly what baptism and that second baptism of confession is, then it does really amazing things. Um, I think people get really wrapped around the axle about these uh, supernatural or preternatural manifestations of things. And uh, I don't want to say, well, just go to confession. It's going to be fine. I think if we don't go to confession, if we don't do everything we can to stay in the state of grace and then to repent as soon as possible, then, you know, we're setting up ourselves for disaster. And uh, when that spiritual combat against the world, the flesh and the devil, we have everything we need to fight that, right? We have the grace of God, which is given to us in extraordinary means through however he communicates with the soul and through the ordinary means of the sacraments uh, and also the sacramentals of the church. You know, we have uh, things like blessed palms and holy water and all that kind of stuff. All that stuff can be used superstitiously, but it also can be uh, ways in which God can use those physical things in the material world that have been set apart for his worship uh, to assist us to continue in the state of grace. Uh, so again, as Father Newman said, you know, the, we shouldn't be afraid that, oh gosh, there's demons lurking behind every corner. Well, sure there are. They may be. If you're in the state of grace and you're with Jesus, you're going to be fine. Again, we go back to, uh, to that fundamental thing. 
Anyone who's spiritually alert, anyone who knows the truth of supernatural existence and God's grace will eventually experience some manifestation of evil. You may be alone. You may be with others. You'll see something that is obviously wicked. Not just wrong-headed, but wicked. You'll see delight in wickedness. Or it may be as simple as you become aware that you're not alone. And the, and the presence is not the numinous presence I felt in the chapel. It's something hateful. Whenever that happens, call on the name of the Lord. Jesus, save me. That's it. There's nothing we can do to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the fallen angels. There's no mano imano with Lucifer, except by the Lord. So call upon the Lord in faith and absolute confidence and trust in his mercy and power. Jesus saved me. I've experienced this myself, particularly if I'm wrestling with a pastoral problem for a parishioner who's ensnared in sin or being affected by the sin of someone else in their lives. I may be alone in prayer or even asleep in my room and wake up suddenly and think, I'm not alone. When that happens, I simply say, Jesus save me. Mental illness is a complicated galaxy of questions, psychiatric questions, meaning questions of the brain and chemistry. Uh, but in the New Testament, there are regular references to what we might be inclined to think of as mental illness as being the work of demons. The longer I live, the more I come to the conclusion we should probably say it's both. Not either or, but both. You read about a woman in Texas who drowns all of her children, right? How can you not see the face of the fallen angels? Is she subject to a psychosis that our science can diagnose? Yeah, sure. But where did the suggestion come from? Is it impossible that this was the work of the fallen angels? When most people come to a priest wondering if they are encountering evil, they're probably just in need of a psychiatrist. And using Occam's razor, we should find the, the simplest solution possible. So if they need a therapist rather than an exorcist, we have to say that. But we should never assume that they don't need both. When I was pastor of Divine Redeemer Hanahan, I got a call one day, a man I'd never met who introduced himself as a Methodist minister from a church not far away. And after the pleasantries of getting to know you, he said, I actually called for a reason. I have a woman in my congregation who may or may not be possessed by the devil. I said, Reverend, how can I help you? He said, this is above my pay grade. She needs a priest. Some instinct in him helped him understand 
that despite all the ecumenical falderall, that we're all just the same, aren't we? That a priest ordained in the apostolic succession from heads to hand, going back to the Lord Jesus himself, is in a different situation than a minister of the gospel. I mention this now because deliverance ministries that Father Dwight uh, mentioned are important and real and, and, and blessed by the church. But in the end, if it requires exorcism, only a priest and only a priest trained for this purpose should be involved in doing it. Anybody else is playing with fire and it may get worse rather than better. Not because the priest is holier, but because the priest is truly configured to the Lord Jesus in a way that no one else is. And it is Christ working through the instrument of the priest who will deliver the soul who has become ensnared with evil. If the Lord is merciful, you won't ever have a reason to call for an exorcist. But if you do, just call the priest closest to you and say, Father, who's the diocesan exorcist in this place? Every diocese has one, sometimes more than one, but this is not something to trifle with. Now, to turn this to the positive. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the living God. The eternal word made flesh. Light from light, true God from true God. Yes, a man like us in all things but sin, the son of Mary, but also God the Son, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, including the angels, even the fallen ones. The victory of Christ is already accomplished. There is no doubt about how the story ends. It ends with the wedding feast of the Lamb. Everything we're doing now is in the hope of sharing in that eternal feast. And the life of the church, the means of grace, the holy scriptures, the liturgy, all of it, are but means to draw us into the life of grace now so that we may share it forever. Let us pray. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken in them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life in baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming.